This is an ABC podcast. My problem is that I've never met an invertebrate I didn't instantly love. And so it's been really hard to just focus my research on one. They're just, there's so many, they're so diverse, and there's just, oh, there's so much to know. On Off Track today, an invertebrate that doesn't buzz, at least not that we know of, it doesn't have a brain. But it's able to solve a problem. It doesn't have legs, but it can have a foot. Sometimes. You might not know it's there, but it is. It's everywhere. It's slime mould. And Dr Tanya Laddie, originally from Canada and now Associate Professor at the University of Sydney, is possibly its biggest fan. I had the opportunity to go to Japan for a few months and work with the, the pioneers of some of the slime mold research, Dr. Toshiyuki Nakagaki's group. It was fascinating. It was so fun. I, like, I loved just watching them. And, and when I got back to Australia, I thought, you know, it would be awesome just to have a pet slime mold. <laughs> you know, just something I could kind of play with and just watch. And sure enough, turns out you can buy slime molds on the internet because you can buy everything. But I had one delivered and I used to just keep it in my desk drawer in my office and looking in it from time to time. And while I was doing that, I noticed that when I fed it, it, it acted almost the same way that my ant colonies do. And that if you fed it something it really liked, it would consume that thing. But then it would search the area really close around that food source, almost like it was looking for more. Whereas if you fed it something it didn't like as much, it tended to just zip off and go off in other directions and do a very different kind of search pattern. So its search pattern depended on what it was eating. And, and we went on to actually quantify that and produced a study that showed that indeed this organism is adapting its search strategy depending on the quality of the thing that it encountered. Once I realized I could do that, it's like, well, this is awesome. <laughs> we can do all sorts of experiments with this organism. You know, the same sorts of experiments we would normally do on ants or bees or anything. And then we can change those experiments and see whether the slime molds are able to do them as well. The kinds of slime molds we're talking about today are giant amoebas. So even though they're called slime molds, they're not actually funguses or in the fungi kingdom. They're in the kingdom protists. So, so the easiest way to think of a slime mold is it's a gigantic amoeba. Now, there's a little bit of confusion because there's actually two distinct organisms that have the common name slime mold. One are called the um, cellular slime molds, and these are organisms that live individually in the soil as individual cells most of the time. But when conditions get bad, so if they run out of food, they put out this chemical message that sort of like says, ah, we got to get out of here. And that chemical message causes all the single-celled slime molds in that area of that species to converge on one place where they get together and form what we call a slug. It's a kind of multicellular I don't know, soup. Oh, it's, an, oh, it's hard to explain. It's a multicellular critter that then crawls away, makes a stalk, and then they can disperse their spores that way. So they go from being single-celled to being multicellular briefly to create the spores. So that's really cool, but that's not the kind of slime mold that I study. 
Um, the kind of slime molds I study are called the acellular slime molds. And they are also single-celled creatures, but instead of being lots of individuals, they're actually just one enormous cell with millions of nuclei, um, which is really unusual. But what it means is because there's millions of nuclei, you can divide an acellular slime mold into as many pieces as you want, and each of those pieces becomes a totally independent individual capable of making its own decisions within minutes. Uh, and then if you put those little bits back together from the same for the same previous individual, they'll just fuse and become one critter again. So they're, they're deeply, deeply weird, weird organisms. Um, not animals, not fungi, not plants, but something else. <laughs> they're like aliens on Earth, I think, because their, their life cycle is different, the way they, you know, they move is different. Even the vocabulary we have to use to talk about them is different. What is an individual? in an organism that can split into bits and those bits can become independent, but then they can come back together again. I don't even know how the words to talk about that. Yeah, and I mean, it is it is unfortunate that they got labelled slime moulds really, isn't it? Because it does bring to mind mould, which people can associate with, I suppose, dangerous spores and things like that because they have a human health impact. But there's no evidence apart from horror movies that slime moulds will have that happen right no i haven't i haven't seen any evidence of anybody becoming infected with the slime well they're not pathogenic i mean if you're if you're working with the you know of course you take the normal precautions of like washing your hands and such because it's not necessarily the slime molds, but there can be other bacteria and microbial things in the soil and the leaf litter. Um, but those are the same precautions you should be taking when you're like gardening or doing anything that involves you know playing in the dirt where do these organisms, slime molds, actually sit in the sort of history of the tree of life? Yeah, they're really different. <laughs> so if you think about, one way to think about it is animals and fungi share a common ancestor way, 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 way back in time. Slime molds split off in their own direction before animals split from fungus. So they're very, very old and very different group of critters to everything else. Um, again, they're, they're really alien. I think they've kind of gone off on their own trajectory, quite different from the one that animals and fungi and plants went on. Where are they found in the world? Pretty much everywhere that people have taken the time to look. I think one of the problems with even talking about how many slime mold species there are in the world is that there aren't many slime mold biologists and there's even fewer slime mold biologists who do um, taxonomy, which is the branch of science that goes out, looks for new species and, and then names them and identifies them. And, and so because of that, we just don't know a lot about global slime mold diversity. And I think it's really only, only recently that there's starting to be a real push to try to understand what that biodiversity actually looks like. And, and what do we know about them in our cities then? <laughs> Well, it's kind of funny because I think, you know, like most ecologists and taxonomists, when people go to look for species, they tend to go to places that are really nice and wild and, you know, like rainforests and, you know, unexplored areas. That's because, you know, we're human. People, I think, love going out to those areas and, and sampling. And we noticed a few years ago that there weren't a heap of studies that focused on urban slime mold. So we went out and sampled a whole bunch of urban parks um, around the Sydney area, some in kind of the inner city where there was like lots of urbanization and not heaps of green space, and some in kind of further out from the city where there's more green space and uh, closer to kind of wild bushland. And then we just looked at the slime mold species that we found. 
And we were able to identify from the samples 23 different slime mold species which was really exciting for us because we weren't sure if we would find any. And of those species, we didn't really find an effect of urbanization. So we didn't find any more species in the inner city than we did, say, closer to bushland, which is kind of encouraging, but it's only one study, of course, so we don't really know. I've seen one research study that looked at slime mold diversity in and around houses, so looking on things like potted plants and on surfaces, and even there they were finding um, slime mold spores. So I suspect they're extremely widespread, and I would be shocked if they weren't far more common in the city than even our study found. So the way we look for slime molds in the city is not to actually look for the plasmodial form or to look for sporangia, because those can be a little bit hard to find. Instead, we take samples of leaf litter, take that back to the lab, soak it in water for a little while, pour the water off, and then basically just keep staring at those trays every day for a couple of weeks. And when you do that, you give the slime mold, if there are any spores, they have a chance to hatch and fuse and form this plasmodium. And then once we see that plasmodium crawling off, we take it out of that tray and then try to get it to form a spore. Because without the sporangia, you can't really identify the species. So there's a bit of a process to kind of go from the leaf litter to the thing we can actually identify. How do slime molds in the city power themselves? I mean, what are they eating? They eat in the sense that they will engulf food items and then digest it, and then that gets spread around the organism. So they normally in the wild, we think they feed primarily on bacteria, um, although we know that they'll also, there are some species that seem to preferentially feed on mushrooms and things. Uh, weirdly enough, in the lab, we often just feed them oats, oat flakes, no idea why they love oat flakes so much and why they do so well, because it's not something they'd run into in their environment. But yeah, that's what we feed them, rolled oats. Oh, my goodness. See, just when you thought you couldn't <laughs> love them anymore, they also love porridge. Mm-hmm. Did the discovery that there were all of these urban dwelling slime molds within the city limits of Sydney change your perception of the place, you know, as you were just going about your everyday business. <laughs> I mean, I'm really happy to know we have this much slime mold diversity. Um, it was really exciting to bring home those leaf litter you know, collections because we had played around with leaf litter before, so we knew that we might get some of the didymium species because we'd seen them come off of our plates before. But we had no idea that we would get so many different types. And I, I'm just so happy to know that I can go outside, grab some leaf litter from almost everywhere, and I'll probably be able to get a slime mold off of it if I want to. On Off Track, you're listening to Dr Tanya Latty, putting up with endless questions from me about slime moulds. Not only has she been out and about in Sydney trying to find out more about urban slime moulds, she's also been keenly looking at slime mould, not, not cognition, but slime mould decision-making. So, do they have a brain? No, they don't. They don't even have neurons or organs because it's a single-celled organism, right? So there is no, there, there are no cells. There are no cells inside of that one cell. So there can't be neurons. So they really are, oh, it's like a homogenous goo. <laughs> like there's not a whole lot of differentiation. They have organelles, which are tiny bits of the cell that do different things. But yeah, there's no, there's no internal kind of arrangement the way you would see in sort of a multicellular organism. Tanya Laddie is working at the University of Sydney with a cohort of colleagues that look into collective behaviour. That means they study all sorts of creatures. Slime moulds is just one group of them. 
Collective behavior describes phenomenon where the overall pattern or behavior that you see isn't something you would predict from the individuals that are part of that. So, I mean, the best example I can think of is our brains, right? If you took a single neuron out of a brain, that single neuron can't really do all that much. Like it's got a few different ways of signaling, but nothing, nothing complicated. You would never predict that if you put, you know, billions of those neurons together, you would get an intelligence that can do all sorts of things like, you know, make the internet and, you know, watch TV, you know, and those sorts of things, write exams. Like that, you would never predict that complexity of behavior from that single neuron. And when you look at that single neuron, it's not like that single neuron knows everything about how brains work. That single neuron doesn't um, you know, know anything about, you know, science or maths or anything it's really all the collection of neurons together have a property that isn't present in the individuals. And that's, that's kind of the essence of collective behavior. And so you can see it in things like ant colonies where, you know, the colony might be doing really cool things and, um, you know, building really complicated structures, but an individual ant couldn't build that structure on her own. I mean, that individual ant probably isn't even aware of that structure in, in any real way. You know, she builds that nest by following really simple, basic rules. Um, but then collectively, when you get lots of them doing it, you get all these emergent properties. So it's a phenomenon we see in all sorts of different places from like brains to ant colonies to, um, as it turns out, slime molds. Does a group of organisms that are partaking in collective behavior, do they need a leader? No, and that's a really important part of collective behavior is that there are no leaders and there are no blueprints. So in an ant colony, I mean, we often think of like the queen as being in charge, but she's not in any, any real sense. The queen isn't directing the workers to do everything. There are no leader ants, you know, not, not the way we think of it. Instead, you know, individuals are just following very simple rules. So it can be a little hard to get your head around, I think, because humans are so used to being hierarchical and having, you know, leaders who tell us what to do and, you know, people who direct our behaviors. And that's just not the case for a lot of different systems. So what is um, swarm intelligence? So swarm intelligence and collective behavior, they're not exactly interchangeable, but they're both describing very similar phenomenon. I'd say the difference is that collective behavior is also concerned with patterns and things. Um, so, for example, flocks of birds kind of moving in particular ways or, you know, how stripes form on different organisms. Whereas swarm intelligence is more about the behavior. So we're interested in how um, systems might solve particular types of problems or make particular types of decisions, given that they have this this collective response rather than individual. Right. So with all that as background, when did we first start to notice that slime molds could make rational decisions? Yeah, so in the early 2000s, Hashiki Nakagaki, who's the scientist I worked with in Japan, he had what I think is probably the wildest idea in science. So he was studying slime molds for movement um, because they're a good example of how a cell moves, right? It's a big cell. You can watch it so you can study it to understand the sorts of ways that cells move. And for some reason that he's never actually told me why he did this, he decided to take his slime mold and pop it into a maze, um, which, you know, is strange <laughs> because it's, it's got no brain. It's got no neurons. Why would you think that it can solve a maze? Uh, and so he put two foods, two food sources, one at the beginning of the maze and one at the exit of the maze. And they just let the slime mold 
kind of go into it. And at first, the slime mold sort of spreads out across the whole maze. It doesn't really look like it's doing anything particularly interesting. It eventually will find the food, but only because it's basically filled up the maze until it kind of oozes into the right choice, essentially by accident. But if you keep watching, something really interesting starts to happen. And it's that the, the areas that are dead ends, so the places of the maze that don't go anywhere, the slime mold starts to retract and pull its biomass away from those dead ends. Uh, and then it starts to pull its biomass away from any loops or any kind of redundant extra paths. And if you give the slime mold about 48 to 72 hours, most of the time it will connect those two food sources using the shortest possible path through the maze, which is incredible. Um, and it does it kind of in the, a way that seems sort of similar to what the ants do in that it starts by trying a lot of different solutions, but then it has a mechanism that allows that shortest path to be reinforced more than the sort of longer paths. And do we know what that mechanism is in slime molds? Um, I think there's a few different ideas for how it could work. So one is that it's essentially when the shortest path has greater flow. So similar to the ants, the, the path that's connected by the smallest amount, because it's um, less windy, just has sort of more pressure because um, it's got more biomass per per length. And that causes the tubes to expand a little bit more, which means that more biomass kind of flows into that those tubes because the slime mold only has a finite amount of goo. So if a tube gets bigger, it's going to have to suck in goo from other places. And then once you get more goo, then the slime mold's feeding more. So those tubes get even bigger. And so you kind of get this shrinking sort of thing so that you get the shortest path. That's that's one solution. But I'll tell you, a few years ago, I was getting ready for a talk um, and about slime molds, and somebody sent me this video, this like screenshot of a video um, in which somebody was pouring milk into a maze, like a so imagine a, a maze made of Lego, and then you fill that that maze with water, and then you open up the ends so the water starts flowing out of the maze, and you kind of set up a current. And what this person was doing was pouring milk into the entrance of the um, maze, and the milk was finding the shortest path through the maze. And there was this caption under it that said like, ah, see that? Even milk can solve a maze. Take that, slime molds. <laughs> Anyway, I fell into this wild internet hole of, it turns out a lot of things can solve shortest path problems. Like if you, you can do it with bubble films. If you have a bubble film and you have sort of pegs in a triangle or a square, the bubble film will form along the shortest paths. Um, you can do it with like coffee and creamer and mazes. It, it's as long as you have two fluids of different, I think different densities, um, you can get this this thing happening. And wow. so it's apparently a well-known property in physics that often things will find the shortest path, the path of least um, resistance or least energy. So I think there's a lot going on. <laughs> it's not necessarily just that the slime mold's intelligent per se. It's that it's got these mechanisms, but those mechanisms might um, be sort of properties of physics, really. Um, yeah, you, you, you can go pretty far into a philosophical hole. Like, is it is it decision making if it's physics, but isn't everything physics? Ah! <laughs> Look, I'm not going to lie, there's something about the maybe otherworldly quality of slime molds that makes me jump to the conclusion that they're definitely smart enough not to run for Prime Minister at the next election. That That's just my imagination flying away from me after years of reading science fiction. Scientists like Tanya Laddie are much more grounded in reality and are putting slime mold's cognition to the test. 
<laughs> yeah. So, I mean, after I had this moment of like, ah, what do the mazes mean? <laughs> you know, we started thinking that one of the ways we can really get a better idea, I don't want to say if slimals are intelligent, because intelligent is sort of a loaded and, and complicated word, but how can we get a sense of whether slimals really have a suite of decision-making. So can they only do shortest path problems? And so what we started looking at are very different types of problems. So for example, asking the slime mold, if you give it a choice between something it really likes and something it likes a little bit less, can it can it make that decision? Well, yeah, I mean, not surprisingly, they can do that reasonably well. So then we started asking the slime mold, okay, what if you have something you really, really like? So this is um, in our case, really concentrated discs of oatmeal. So it's like a really, really oatmeal-y versus like really not so oatmeal-y, so much less oatmeal. You know, of course, the slime mold will then choose the more concentrated one, but that we can make them a lot harder by putting a light over the more concentrated food source. And so what we've done is made the thing that you like the most is also the most dangerous. It's the scariest. Or so the choice for the slime mold is, do you want something really good that's kind of dangerous or something not as good, but safe? Now, you can ask that question to a lot of organisms, and there's a few different ways to solve it. The easiest way that doesn't really require a lot of cognitive complexity is just to say, look, I will always choose the safe choice. I, don't, I will just ignore half the information. You know, or the converse, you could say, I will always choose the most concentrated food source, and I just kind of ignore danger. The harder way to make that decision and the way that requires we think a little bit more processing is to say, I will only take the option that's more dangerous if it's much better than the option that's safe. So you only pick one if you get more of a benefit that justifies that risk. And so we did this by giving the slime molds like lots of choices between different pairs of concentrations and with the good one always in the light, the scary option. And what we found is that the slime molds would typically only venture into the light, so the scary option, if that choice was at least five times more concentrated than the option in the dark. So they were able to take into consideration both the danger of the food item, but also how concentrated it was, so how many calories they could get out of it. They could do some sort of, I don't want to say mental arithmetic because they don't have a brain, but some sort of calculation and then choose the option that had the best payoff. One of the things that I think that we often do in the media when talking about slime molds is we probably make them sound as if they're infallible. So <laughs> do they always get it right? Oh, goodness, no. <laughs> so they make mistakes. Um, you know, even when we do things like those maze experiments, sometimes they don't find the shortest path. Sometimes they don't choose the best quality food item, even when, you know, it's kind of obvious which one is the best. So they definitely make mistakes. What I find fascinating about them is that you can have one individual that you then break into 20 bits and you give each of those 20 bits the same problem and they don't all do the same thing. And we don't really know why that is because, I mean, it's not like they're clones. They were literally the same individual like five hours ago. You would think they would all do exactly the same thing and they don't. Um, so no, they're not, I wouldn't say at all that they're infallible. Just like everything else, they make mistakes. We don't necessarily understand the decision-making process well enough to understand what the cause of those mistakes are. And we don't really understand what the cause of all that variation is either. So I have to ask, mm -hmm. your slime mold that was in your drawer in your office, what happened to that? <laughs> oh, it, it lived its life and eventually it sporulated. So that's kind of what they, they tend to do towards the end of their lives is they sporulate. And 
At the time, we didn't really have the ways to collect the slime molds and find another mating type to crossbreed them. So that was the end of that particular slime mold. But we've had many others since. One of the PhD students in my lab, uh, Arissa Hasakawa, is doing research on slime molds, all sorts of stuff about slime molds, but in particular, how slime mold behavior changes as they age. We suspect she may have the world's oldest slime mold, although we're not 100% sure, but we can't find a record of any living as long as hers has. A geriatric (laughs) slime mold. It it was an old slime. I think it's it's since passed, but it it lived a very long life. (laughs) Have, have you considered the fact that there might be tiny little bits of your slime mold still in your desk <laughs> waiting for the perfect opportunity? <laughs> I mean, sometimes I think about how many, there's probably slime mold spores on me right now. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of glad I can't actually see yeah. all the slime mold spores that are probably kicking around. I mean, working with slime molds is great fun and very interesting but sometimes you do feel like you might be at the beginning of a horror movie <laughs> like you know you're trying to find out about their behavior and then <laughs> one day you turn around and they've written something on the wall in slime <laughs> <sighs> yeah yeah Tanya Laddie is an associate professor with the University of Sydney and is actually into all sorts of invertebrates including bees and slime molds I'm Ann Jones, and remember to meet me and the Slime Mold Gang at the off-track bus stop at the same time next time, because that's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.